hey, you know what I believe? I believe every single person can make a difference and that we all have something amazing to offer the world. I believe in standing up for what matters and in putting one foot in front of the other. I believe courage is way more important than confidence and I'm addicted to seeing people break through what they once thought they couldn't. And that's why I started this podcast. I want you to believe in yourself. I want you to know that anything's possible. I want you to find the courage to stand up and do your thing. Everything's waiting for you. You just have to believe it's possible. I'm Karen Vaughan. This is the Get Off The Bench podcast. And here is where your courageous life starts. And welcome back to another week of the Get Off The Bench podcast. Wow, we're in our mid-30s now and I'm absolutely loving this. And I am re- really, really appreciate all your support. I love that you stick with me. Um, I love that you're coming on people's journeys and, and sharing their stories and listening to all the things they've done. It's just absolutely amazing. And I really hope it is inspiring you to think about what is that thing I really want to get off the bench and actually start backing yourself, you know, and, and I, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and they said, but I'm so scared. I don't want to take the big leap. I'm scared that if I just leave my job and, and jump into this, you know, what if I fail? And and I understand that because she was saying that I need the money. You know, I can't just have no job. I can't just have no income um, just on a whim that it might work. And I get that. I get that. So you know, how about thinking about, well, could I start it as a side hustle? Could I just start putting one foot forward, you know, one foot in front of the other um, in my spare time? And I know we don't all have spare time, but if something's that important to you, you can make your spare time and just start doing it bit by bit and let it, watch it grow. You know, I mean, that's how I've started most things. That's how a lot of people I know start things. You, You don't have to do the big jump. Now today, if you have been thinking about writing a book or if you're a writer just love writing and you or you wanted to start a blog or you know anything like that you want to submit articles to magazines today's guest is exactly who you need to hear she's gotten off the bench so many times in all of these areas but it's her today what I'm, I'm going to focus on is her book writing and her most recent book so let me tell you about it and stick with it and listen to it I hope you get inspired to start writing. Let me introduce her. So Sue Smethers is an award-winning journalist who has written for Australia's biggest and most respected titles, including the Australian Women's Weekly, the Weekend Australian Magazine, the Age Good Weekend, New Idea, Woman's Day, the Herald Sun, Australian House and Garden, the Victorian RSL's Mufti Magazine, and in the UK, Woman's Own and Chat. Her career has taken her around the globe interviewing a who's who of celebrities, newsmakers, colourful identities, sports stars and politicians. In addition to her editorial career, Sue has worked on and off camera with The Current Affair and Sunrise and spent five years as a weekly commentator with Neil Mitchell on 3AW. Sue is a best-selling author with book sales in excess of 100,000 copies, specialising in non-fiction. Her first books, The Clothesline Diet series, were published by Pan Macmillan in Australia and Harlequin in the United States. In 2015, she won a prestigious Sassy Award for her book called Behind Closed Doors, published by Simon and Schuster, which was also a finalist in the 2016 Davitt Awards. The highly acclaimed book Blood on the Rosary was published by Simon and Schuster in 2018, followed by the epic Australian Outback memoir A Diamond in the Dust, 
which was also published in Germany in 2020. Sue's most recent book, The Freedom Circus, published by Penguin Random House in 2020, is a deeply personal story of how her husband's grandparents used the cover of a Polish circus to escape the Nazis. Wow. Welcome, Sue. Hi, Karen. It's so good to be with you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, it's good to be with you too. Ah, oh, Sue, I tell you what, I have um, I saw you, uh, what was it, nearly, nearly two weeks ago, you did a talk for the Latrobe Libraries yeah. on your new book, The Freedom Circus, which I just mentioned, and... Oh, you had me in tears. I, so... I try not to pe- make people cry, Karen. It's not, a, it's not a happy trait, but no, look, it is. Thank, I mean, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank yeah. you. It's, um, yeah, it's a very emotional book and it was a very um, emotional time writing it and a very challenging, it was a very, very challenging book to write for a whole lot of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into, yeah. but... Um, it's lovely. I'm, I'm very grateful that it's now on the shelf and that it's out there. And we, we got there in the end. There were lots of lots and lots of times when I thought I'm never, ever going to finish writing this thing. But we did. So it's a, it's, um, a huge relief and a great joy to see it on the shelf. And, uh, and that night that you spoke about was quite remarkable for me because um, my cousin-in-law joined us from Israel, which was a yeah. lovely, lovely surprise. I didn't know he was going to be joining us. And there was also another uh, family online watching that night who contacted me afterwards because they have a very, very similar story. And in fact, their father was a part of the circus too. And they're a family from Morwell, of all things, just down the road from where I grew up. So I'm looking forward to connecting with them. And um, their their father is actually in some of the photos that we have in the book and we weren't able to identify these particular people. So that was such a joy to be able to do that. Totally, totally unexpected, but really, really wonderful experience. That That was that elderly couple that was sitting there. Yes, that's 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 right. And they they sort of made themselves known, and then afterwards sent me emails saying, "Well, you know, we're we're in your book. Our dad is actually in your book." And I thought, "Oh my goodness!" You know, of all of the, you know, every everything is an opportunity. You never know when you're speaking to someone or or what might might come of it. And that was um, completely mind blowing. So I'm looking very very much looking forward to having a cup of coffee with them wow. in Gippsland sometime in the next um, week or so. I hope. How fantastic! Yeah, I noticed that they were super, super, super immersed in that in that your story and 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 the um and they were the ones that mentioned about the Africa. Yeah, Africa. That's you right. didn't talk about the circus in Africa. Yes. Yeah, that was a bit yeah. of a confusing point. But um, I, then I started to think they know more about this than we realize and they sure did. Yeah. They sure did. And their father was a performer too. So. Um, it's really lovely to be able to put the dots together and and, and um, identify someone that we we didn't know about and, and I'm looking forward to hearing their story. Jeez, it's a small world, isn't it? It sure is. Oh. <laughs> and I agree with you. You just open your mouth, you know, you, you, you say things and you tell people about stuff, you ask questions and it's unbelievable what you find out. You know, it's incredible. The stories that I have been told um, since... In really, you know, particularly in relation um, to Holocaust survivors, since the book was published, I've really, you know, some of them are just so profound, profoundly moving stories that people have shared with me, which has been really, really beautiful. Mm. Um, but I guess reiterates to me that there are still so 
many stories from that era um, to be told. Mm. And Australia has a very rich and deep connection to the Holocaust because we have a very strong Jewish culture Mm. and um, so many stories here still to tell. I know. I remember going to the Jewish, um, the Holocaust Museum in in Elstonwick. Yes. And I just like... All the photos everywhere, every single one of those faces would have their own interpretation and their, you know, their own story to tell. And my my heart broke. I just, it, it, you know, to to think that, to think that, um, in particular one person, but you know, a lot of people under that one person could do so much harm is just, uh, it, it's it's mind blowing. It's not even fathomable to. Oh look, and it, it, you know, every one of those stories needs to be told, which was really sort of part of. The reason that this book began um, in the beginning because this was our family story it was the story of my husband's grandparents and we wanted to know for our own children's sake where their heritage came you know where they came from what their heritage was and, and how they came how they ended up being in Australia from Poland you know of all the, of all the places so it really began as a family history project essentially but very very quickly became so much more than that and along the way of course you do in the re- during the research period we uh, there are just so many other stories that are yet to be told but it is a great privilege to be able to i guess bring those voices to life and particularly bring to life the voices of those who didn't survive and in in our case in in our family's case there were a whole family um, that were lost um, mm. to the holocaust and were lost at treblinka so this the book in many ways honors them and allows um, their voices to be heard too and yet there are still so 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 many more so um, mm. it's certainly um it certainly is a great privilege to be able to do that Mm, millions millions more and I, millions, I agree yeah, millions. but it is such a at least you can at least you can give voice to some and that that kind of what's you know it sort of sort of at least gives some voice to those who who will never get their stories shared you know it's some voice. that's right it, it honors them and yeah. I think um in telling these stories it honors everyone and the intention is to honor everyone but it also teaches us more and we still have so much more to learn about that period of our history um, and the influences and and the impact of it all I thought going into this that I had a really good understanding of of the holocaust I thought that my knowledge of the holocaust was pretty good but the more I studied um, the more I realized how little I actually knew Um, and that that became really apparent to me very quickly so for me it was as much of a learning process too and um, and I certainly feel far, far more um, engaged with that period of time now. But the more I know about it, the more I'm the more I want to learn and the more I'm desperate to know and the more I realise that I don't know. I Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we um, we sort of just have that uh, big impact um, understanding, you know, nah, um, Hitler was a bastard, you know, <laughs> murdered all these Jews and they put into concentration camps and gassed and, you know, and, and, and stolen. And, and I think we just kind of hear those big impact stories, do you, you know what I mean? And we, we don't know yeah. all the nuances that went on underneath it and how he became so, um, oh, how, how, how he got himself into a situation where so many people followed, you know, and, and how how people could follow and just murder so many is just beyond me. So I was going to leave this till the very last, but and jump into other stuff. But <laughs> I think we, uh, 
I think we just have to do this book first and then we'll come back to all the other stuff. We can, but, we can do that. We can uh, do that. We can. I'm, I'm happily in your hands, Karen. Wherever oh, you want to go, I'll follow. Sue, that's a dangerous place to be, but let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, you know, I'm, I'm sort of curious. So I want to talk, I do want to talk about you, uh, you know, some on a lighter note, some of the stories you've done with um, some of the magazines around the world. But I also want to talk yeah. about a couple of the books. Well, You've done a few other books, but there's two in particular I just wanted to um, touch up on. But we'll, we'll do that late at the end. But this book, um, the the Freedom Circus. So we've sort of talked all about you know the Holocaust and well, not really. We've we've touched on the Holocaust and talked about um, some honouring the the Jewish people who were absolutely tortured and what have you. But and tell us how how you. Tell us about this book. Like this book's a freedom circus, and it's about your husband's grandparents. So, how did you decide to write the book? Like, you know, how did it all come about? It was a, it was a very organic process, I guess I can say. Um, I I wanted to. I, I'd heard snippets of um, Manya, my grandmother-in-law's story. My grandfather-in-law Kubush passed away quite a long time ago, long before I ever became part of the family, but. I'd, I'd heard snippets of Nana's story and how Nana survived, how they survived the Holocaust, but it was never really discussed. The family didn't talk about it. Um, you know, you'd sit down at family dinners and things and nothing was ever discussed. It was kind of the white elephant in the room. But I, my husband had told me bits and pieces of it and it always intrigued me. It was an extraordinary story. And he remembers very vividly as a from his childhood, his grandfather telling him these extraordinary, what were then considered to be sort of, you know, bedtime fairy tales about the circus and the clown and the, and the wonderful clown, the funny clowns who tricked the Nazis and, and, you know, while the Nazis laughed, they lived. And as it turned out, you know, these weren't actually fairy tales. These, this, this was the genuine story of, of how they survived. And he'd, they'd shared these stories with with their grandchildren, with my husband and his cousins in various formats. He passed away. Um, Nana didn't really ever speak about it, but I, I knew that for my own children's sake, I, I always knew this was a really, this, you know, this is a really interesting story and I wanted to know, you know, how on earth did she get here? How, you know, mm-hmm. where, how did this journey, how, where did this journey take them? So I've chatted about it with the family and that the, the consensus generally was, look, she doesn't speak about it and we don't ask because, you know, we don't want to upset her. She's an elderly lady. No one wants to re-traumatise her. And, and there was sort of a, a fear that in asking her very directly about these things that it might actually re-traumatise her, which I totally, you know, completely mm. understand and that's completely fair enough. But as she got a little bit older and we could see that time was sort of running out, I really did feel a sense of obligation that we need to write, you know, we need to document this story because... If it goes to the grave with her, then we'll regret it. I would regret it forever, not yeah. knowing really what happened to them. It was, and it was important for our children. So the family agreed and said, yes, you know, with our, with our blessing, go and do it and, you know, see how you go, see, see whether she'll talk about it. So it was very tricky. It was all a bit tricky. But uh, she was in a nursing home by that stage and she was a hilarious woman, very witty, very funny, very sharp right on top of the day's news she was completely across current affairs you know at the age of wow. 94 wow. and uh, you know you couldn't put anything over her you could you, you you could not fool her or trick her or that that just wasn't going to be so 
I knew not to take her cakes or anything like that because she was keeping her figure at the age of, you know, in her nineties. <laughs> but on. she loved. She was quite. She was. She, yeah, yeah. She was. She was on the ball, but she was quite vain. And, and I and I say this very lovingly because we always said the last thing that will go before Nana dies will be the vanity gene. But she was always made up. You know, she she had the the, the nails were done, the hair was done, the jewelry was on and you know it wasn't just sort of one piece of jewelry all of the jewelry was on the lipstick was done or whatever she was she was very 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 proud woman oh love it so i i worked out to get her attention i needed to sort of, i needed to i needed to play in her space so i'd go and visit her and i would take her the latest nail polish that i could find always you know crazy colors bright purples and oranges <laughs> and whatever and we'd sit in the nursing home and um and chat while she painted her nails and she'd given my mother-in-law um this little very rusty old tin of black and white photos before she went into the nursing home it was kind of a you know here you look up you know you look after this you do something with this mm-hmm. and they were the most beautiful photos none of them had dates or names or anything on them so that was how we started I would sit with her with these photos and while she was painting her nails I would ask her you know Nana who's this in this picture or where was this taken and and she would start to sort of unpick it all. Oh, that's, you know, I was here and there. And, and we started to sort of un, unpick the story a little bit and we'd gently get into it. And we had the same routine every time. We'd, we'd, we'd sit and we'd do the nails, we'd have a bit of chat and then we'd go down to the lunchroom and we'd have lunch. And, and this literally the first day that I sat down with her and I had my tape recorder and everything out. And I, she knew what I was doing and I'd said to her, you know, and I, I, I want to write out your history and... Oh, you know, what do you want that for kind of attitude? And we sat down at lunch and I pulled out the tape recorder again and started to make some notes. And and she said, why are you even interested in this? And I said, because, Nana, I, you know, I really want to know your story. I really want to know your story. And she looked around the table and there's this table of these gorgeous little old women sitting in front of us. And she pointed to all of whom had, had their own um, stories of persecution or surviving in some capacity, Jewish women. And she pointed to every one of them and she said, well, what about her and her and her and her? Mm. My story is no different to any of them. And it was like a light bulb moment for me of that it wasn't re-traumatising her to tell her story. She just genuinely didn't think that her story was anything special because everyone she knew had mm. had suffered so greatly. She just didn't think her suffering was any more worthy than anybody else's suffering and there was an attitude of that they had this attitude very firmly when they arrived in Australia that there was no good coming from looking back at the past. There was you know, no good come from looking back. We moved on. We're not going to talk about it anymore. We're just going to put it all, leave it, leave it behind us and start a new life in Australia. And that's essentially what they did. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was, I guess it was... Um, a weight lifted off the shoulder in many ways because it was an approval. It was an approval for me to to continue on with this mm. um, because it wasn't necessarily re-traumatising her. Yeah. She just didn't think the story was worthy of being told. So that was kind of really quite a pivotal moment for me to 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 know that okay, I'm I'm good to do this, and you know I've got her blessing to do it, and now we know why. Uh, but then of course we were running out of time, so it really was a case of try and get as much down as you as much of the story as you possibly can before she passes away and that was how it really began Um, but it still began it was still at that stage very much a family history project but she passed away and 
you know, life goes on, kids and work and writing books and everything's really busy. But I had this folder sitting on my desk where it had sat for a very, very long time. And whenever I got the chance, I'd try and do a little bit more research and put, I guess, put some sort of flesh on the bones of the skeleton. I had the skeleton story from her, but I needed a lot more to really understand it. The more the, the, the more I began researching and really researching quite deeply, trying to find, essentially trying to find what happened to her family. Where did they live? What happened to all of them? Who were they? Um, that's when it became apparent to me, actually, this story is much, much bigger than anything that I ever imagined it would be. And, um, and I really wanted to write it as a book. Um, so I was very, very fortunate that Penguin Random House said, Yes, we think there's a story in there too. Um, go and do it. But I missed every deadline. It took so long. <laughs> the research was so hard. It was, you know, I don't speak Polish. All the documents, most of the documents and things that I needed were destroyed during the war. Everything, you know, everything I needed was in a, a country a very, very long way away in a language that I didn't speak. So it had all sorts of challenges that come with it. And, um, and yes, my, my publisher was very, very kind and very patient and very forgiving. And, but eventually we got there in the end. And, um, and it is an extraordinary story and, and it is a story that should have been told. So yeah. I'm very, very pleased in the end that, um, that it's there. Oh, how long did it take you? Actual writing, two years, um, but five years of research. So I really couldn't start writing it until I had the whole story yeah. in place yeah. and that took a lot of work and then even and we were still re, I was you know really still researching every day right up until I virtually finished the book so I sort of knew where I was going with it all um, because along the way there were these discoveries that, that would take me off on a totally different sort of tangent so what I thought the story would be in the at the beginning and what I sort of knew the skeleton of the story to be the more I researched the more that changed and the sands were shifting the whole time as I was going. And wow. one of those um, tremendous changes was discovering other family members that we didn't know existed. And that was quite a shock um, and quite a big deal because my, my grandmother-in-law, um, Manya, died believing that, that only she and one other sister survived. They were the only survivors of their family. They believed that the rest of their family perished at, at Treblinka. But in the research, we actually found that wasn't true. Two brothers also survived. One went to the United States and one went to Israel. Neither of them knew that any other family members survived too. So they all lived oh. independently, not knowing that any of the others survived. Oh. It was extraordinary and incredibly you know, emotional and challenging, all those things. But the brother who lived in the United States moved to Israel to retire in his latter years as, a, as an elderly gentleman. And the two brothers lived around about a half hour drive from one another in Israel, not ever knowing of the other's existence. Oh. So it, it really was, um, it really did present a lot of challenges along the way. So suddenly during the process of writing Nana and Pop's story, um, we were dealing with a new family that we didn't know wow. who were also equally as stunned at the other end of the phone. It's quite, it's quite um, challenging and quite profound to ring someone and say, we think we might be related to you. Um, and they were very, very, very emotional about it. Mm. Um, so there was lots of layers happening as I was trying to, you know, do the, the actual physical writing of this 
book, there was a whole lot of stuff happening behind the scenes as well that um, kept sort of moving the parameters of where I was going with it and, and how, how the story would be. Wow. And those two, those two brothers never met each other. They died before. Never met each other. Never knew that the other existed. And one of the brothers um, had searched for quite a long time to try and find family members. At the end of the war, um, he'd been in a Russian camp and he made his way back to Warsaw where the family was. was, And um, spent quite a bit of time searching and trying to, pinning up notices on lampposts and every day for several months he went to the Red Cross to see if anyone had come forward um, you know that matched the family name all those sorts of things so um, that was quite heartbreaking for his family and and he he had spoken about them at length through his life he was very open about his grief about losing his family but one of the you know lovely um, and unexpected surprises was that he had kept quite detailed documentation about his family. He'd actually written out his sister's names, who they married, when they married them, the children that they had, um, wow. their birth dates, where they lived. So so that was incredibly helpful for me in my research too, to be able to have that because I didn't have some of that, that information and we were able to marry it all together. Um, so it was, you know, like finding a hidden treasure on the other side of the world. Um, oh. But, of course, the sadness that came with that too for his family, knowing that he had searched and tried to find them and um, and couldn't find any trace of them. And officially, on the official Red Cross documents, they're all listed as perished, including my, my mother-in-law and, of course, you know, she hadn't. So part of the wow. process for me post-book um, has been and still is and will be going on for quite some time, I think, is going back to official documentation and trying to have those records changed to reflect that they, these people actually did live because it's important um, to have that truth told uh, and to have that documentation um, correctly correct. So, um, and even things like Treblinka, we're having their names documented at Treblinka uh, to acknowledge the ones that we do know passed away to ensure that their names are recorded as, as being victims of so it's been quite a quite a process and quite a, a quite a project. It certainly became all absolutely life consuming in a wonderful way. I mean, it was really an incredibly rich learning experience, and it's changed. Um, it really has sort of changed our whole family for for the better. Um, absolutely for the better, I think. Wow, it's so. Imagine just that, you know, they're perished, they're gone, you know, and imagine that the, the, the brother from America, you know, like searching, going back, searching. I can't even imagine that. When you were saying that, my heart was breaking, going back to a place and putting up notices and, oh, look, it's making me sick right now. I'm thinking about it. Just, I'm going to move terribly, on. It's <laughs> terribly, terribly, terribly sad. terrible. Um, and you think of, and, you know, we're just, we're just one family out of, you know, millions, millions, yeah. millions who were impacted. So, uh, and for for, um, for Jacob's daughter, um, it was particularly distressing for her to know that her father her father died with a great sadness in his heart. So there there, there was a sense of grief there, and oh. and he had died with that. Whereas for my mother, my grandmother in law, for for Manya, it it was quite different. She was very robust and very um, stoic, and. You never, we, we never saw any sign of the sadness or the grief. You know, she, she had a sort of cast iron 
exterior that she carried with her that that you know that was that and you sort of didn't go there but when I was talking to her and 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 interviewing her and asking her she was able to recall for me in very vivid detail the really pivotal moments of of that time of her life of war breaking out of of you know essentially running across Poland with a baby on her on her hip of her baby being taken from her literally snatched from her arms of nine months in a in a Russian prison so all of that detail um, she recalled that as if it was yesterday and I was quite fascinated by that 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 clearly that trauma had sat just under her skin you know that was still there that that had not gone away she was in a snap able to be able to tell me all of that quite matter of fact in her detail not emotional, but quite matter of fact, she got very emotional when she spoke about her family and that they'd all died. But that detail sat there, you know, that trauma sat just under her skin all of those wow. years. Jesus. But you never would have known, you know, she was the life of the party. She was the one, you, you know, Mindler was the life of the party. So when Nana Manya arrived, that's when the party began. And and how, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm intrigued as to, and I've thought about it a lot, how she was able to just move on with her life and, mm. you know, live a really rich, full, wonderful, fabulous, enjoyable life um, with that just sitting there, you know, not, too, not just buried a little bit underneath the surface. It's the epitome of gratitude, isn't it? You know, I'm grateful to be alive and just... It is, it is. And, you know, when, when I spoke about, you know, the vanity of, of the lipstick and the hair and all those sorts of things, you know, there really weren't that that wasn't actually vanity at all that was such a deep sense of pride she was yeah. not going to let hitler take that moment from her he, mm. he, he'd taken everything from her but the last thing that he could take from her was her dignity and she would not allow that to happen so for the rest of her life she put her best face forward and, <laughs> good on her and that was how she carried her life yeah absolutely wow. absolutely she was she was not going to give him that last piece of of her humanity and I think that 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 is probably one of the greatest lessons in life for yeah, me yeah that's oh wow so when you your great your grandmother and grandfather-in-law so this is your husband's yeah. grandparents where, where how did their story start like did they meet before the war or after the war or, or I mean during or how did so they met before the war he was a very famous Polish um, clown with a circus Staniewski so the circus Staniewski was enormous at that time if this was in the mid 1930s it was the toast of europe they had a beautiful circus auditorium building in the middle of warsaw and warsaw at that stage was a really beautiful european city it was known as um, the paris of the north it was really quite spectacular Um, and the circus staniewski had this wonderful building in the middle of Warsaw and they entertained, you know, the, the, the hoi polloi, I guess you could say. It was the politicians and the wealthy people and mm. uh, it was the, the place to be and the place to be seen. And he was one of the clowns for this circus. She was very poor. Her family were very, and his family was poor too. He ran away um, from home at 14 to join the circus uh-huh. because it offered a better, better life for him. She was from a very, very poor family too, but she was literally walking home along the street one night, um, she was working at a, at a tannery in Warsaw and fell over as she was coming home in the dark, um, fell over on a bluestone step and he happened to be walking past and helped her up. So he, he literally you know, picked her up in the nicest possible way <laughs> and helped her home and they chatted the whole way. 
and he made sure she got safely inside and that you know Warsaw at that time there was the threat of war was hanging over their head there'd been lots of activity Hitler was very active in Germany and and persecution against the Jews had begun at that stage in Warsaw there'd been some terrible things going on so it really wasn't what he did was very chivalrous because it wasn't the place for a young girl and she was only 16 um, to be out at night um, if she was injured in the street so what he did was very romantic and very chivalrous and that's how she you know described it to us um, but they got married and you know fell in love got married had a baby and he was away touring with the circus. The circus had two arms to it. They had the, the main performance troupe in Warsaw and they also had a touring circus that went right around the countryside of Poland. And he was away in Bialystok with the touring circus when war broke out. And of course, war broke out. It was, it was, it was literally just bang on and off we go. And wow. for a period of two, two weeks and, and a little bit longer, um, Warsaw was, was bombed within an inch of its life until it was essentially just a, a ruined mess. She was there with her baby, he was away. Um, Bialystok also came under, um, came under Nazi fire and came under Nazi rule temporarily before it was handed over to the Russians. And what happened then is probably really, the, you know, set the course of their journey because Russia and Poland, um, Bialystok and Warsaw became parts of different countries. They were no longer part of Poland. Russia took Bialystok, Warsaw was under German rule and there was a border, a territory in between that, that the Nazis were um, occupied. It was not an occupied territory. So suddenly they found themselves literally in two different countries separated by a treacherous border in the middle. Wow. Wow. Um, and that was how really, that's really sort of where their, their story essentially begins. Um, it's a, it is really a story of a, a series of um, lucky moments, coincidences, um, split-second decisions that changed their life. And, and really the catalyst of that was she made a decision that um, things in life in Warsaw was getting very, very difficult for the Jews once the Nazis took over. Uh, there was no food, there was, there was no, no water, uh, no electricity. It was incredibly oh. difficult and... Uh, and there was a, a real sense of, of fear and foreboding about what was happening. Um, people, Jews were being murdered on the streets and, and beaten up. Women were being taken. Um, men were being taken for labour camps. And there was um, talk of, of a ghetto being built. The ghetto had, a ghetto had been built in other places, in other cities. So they knew that this was coming and they would be rounded up. So she made a decision um, to try and, and, and make her way to Russia. They, she figured that Russia had to be better than where he was and where she, where she thought that he was and where she'd last known that he was. This had to, life there had to be better and she was going to make her way there. So she, she went off um, with a child on her hip down essentially along one path. But in the meantime... The circus had been granted permission to leave Russian territory and come back to Warsaw, where they were based. Um, and so their, their paths crossed virtually. Um, they were they were heading in, in in different directions at the same time. And oh. he arrived back in Warsaw to find that she'd already gone, um, oh. and they'd missed one another by a matter of you know days, possibly weeks. So that sort of really set. <laughs> That really set the tone um, for what was going to be an enormous challenge. 
when she got to Russia, um, Russian territory, to Bialystok, she was arrested. Um, she was a very young, attractive woman with a baby on her hip who was blonde-haired and blue-eyed and quite Aryan-looking. So the Russians arrested her, assuming that she was a German spy, which of course she wasn't. She absolutely was no such, she was no such mm. thing. She was a young Jewish girl. Her baby was taken from her and placed oh. into an orphanage and she um, was placed into a jail where she lived for nine months. So that really, that's really the beginning of the story. And from there, it was, you know, an extraordinary effort for them to be reunited uh, and, and they were reunited and he, he managed to have her freed from prison. And then they went on to Moscow and began life in Moscow, working for the Moscow Circus before um, they eventually, many years later, made their way to Australia. Did she ever get the baby back? She did get the baby back. Um, oh. And when we went, my husband and I went, but after, after I'd sort of finished researching um, the largest, the largest sort of, of the book, we went to Poland last year to literally walk in their footsteps and, and find where they'd been and, and, and find this journey. And so, Karen, what really happened here? I mean, this this is a story of a, a series of coincidences and miracles along the way. He essentially gave himself. They ran out of the arms of, of, of Hitler and straight into the arms of Stalin, of all of the, you know, straight into the comforting mm. arms of Stalin. And that was really when this journey began for them. And then it was an epic adventure um, across Moscow, Russia, um, into the Middle East and Iran, into Italy and Africa, before eventually they were able to settle in Australia. Uh, and everything that they did, I think, were um, judgments made based on survival and, and, and the hope of survival. They, they can, their life could have gone either way. Every second was a split-second mm -hmm. decision with rat cunning. Um, but eventually what happened, they made their way to Australia. Um, Australia was the land of, of sunshine and, and ice creams and all these wonderful things. And Australia offered them an opportunity to really have a place where they could put their heads down on the pillow for the first time in their lives and know that they would wake up the next day. And they made a life here. They had a family. Um, they settled here. They ran businesses. They ran milk bars. They did, you know, quintessentially Australian things. And my grandfather had the opportunity, or grandfather-in-law had the opportunity in his later years to audition for a role on the Channel 9 Tarax show, which was a very, very popular ah, show yeah, in the that. 1950s yeah. and 60s. Yeah. yeah, lots of people yeah. remember it. Joffa boy. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a gorgeous young Paddy, Paddy McGrath, who we now know as Paddy yeah. Hinton. Yeah. Um, and he landed a role on the show. So he became one of the first clowns on Australian television, performing as um, then as Sloppo the Clown with Boppo the I Clown. Remember. Oh, that was Sloppo yeah. and Boppo the Clown. <laughs> and he was able to, yeah, pick pick up his circus career all those years later. But none of his colleagues on television, and he was working with Graham Kennedy and Bert Newton and all of these wonderful people, none of them knew his story. None of them knew the incredible lengths that they'd gone to to survive the Holocaust. And none of them knew the sadness that they'd left behind them when they arrived here, um, this, this incredible burden of sadness that they carried, which yeah. is really quite extraordinary. But I do have to share with you one of the loveliest and funniest things out of this whole story for us. And so quintessentially Australian. They decided they had the opportunity to renew their Polish passports many, many long years after the war. But they chose not to. They wanted to become Australian citizens. And they were sponsored 
by a man named Ernie Carroll, who um, worked with Pop on The Tarak Show and was one of the founders of The Tarak Show. But of course, we would know Ernie Carroll now as Ozzy the Ostrich. So I don't, ah. think, I don't think you get anything more Australian than having Ozzy Ostrich um, sponsor you. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Uh, well, maybe Dickie Lee. Maybe. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful, lovely, um, <laughs> lovely, oh. happy touch to what really was an incredible life story. That's amazing, isn't it? I'm so, you know, it could have gone, and as you say, it could have gone any way at any point. And when you, you're talking, you know, Nazis and, and Stalin, you know, and you've got guns pointed at you in every direction and, 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 and trigger happy you know, nutcases, really, yes. you know, it's, uh, <laughs> my God, um, how lucky, how, and, 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 and how lucky that they even found each other, that she got the baby back, I mean, it's just um, one, one unbelievable moment after the other, and it's, series of God. miracles, you know, life yeah. sometimes deals, yeah. life, life can deal with miracles, um, you know, they were like they were lucky, and they considered themselves very, very lucky too. And that was how they lived their life with with a real sense of of absolute gratitude for everything that they that they had, and that they'd been able to have um, that so many others didn't have. It, it really is true, isn't it? It's the, it's your your attitude that um, makes or break your life, doesn't it? it makes or breaks it. It's um, completely, you know? completely. Yeah. Wow, what a story. Well, I remember just when I first saw it, it was a few weeks ago when I first saw the book. I can't remember what, oh no, it was on LinkedIn. And I was like, wow, wow. And then I'm, and of course I said, so I want you. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's amazing. Not that I, not that I, um, you know, think that uh, any less of any of your other stories, but it's just that, that whole, um, God, we just can't, can't imagine. And all those like we said before, we hear all the high high impact stuff, you know, from yeah. the Nazis, and just don't those little intricate uh, stories and details are really they're the things that make you think and think and think and wonder. And but anyway, and so, oh, that's just awesome. And so you've written um, a stack of other books, which I read out before. But there's there's a couple of others that um, well, actually, I want to ask you, how do you determine which books you're going to write? Like you've written some, uh, you know, about um, specific people like how do you and there's a million stories out there how how do these ones get your attention so to write I think they come organically in the sense that um I mean I've been very fortunate with the with the books that I've written the stories that I've done they've always come to me um uh usually you know if in in the first instance as a story and um it's generally when I'm when I'm writing that story for, for whoever it might be, mostly you know Women's Weekly or whatnot, um, that I'll be doing that story and thinking there's so much more to this than I that I can't possibly fit into, mm. you know, a two thousand or three thousand word piece. And and some of those in this you know the books that I have written, those stories have stayed with me for a long time afterwards. And the and usually you know it's women, all of them. Um, have had some sort of profound impact on me and, and I just haven't quite been able to shake this story and I've felt that, you know, we, there was so much more to this that we needed to, to get to. So that's how they've begun, each of them. And they've each come along at, at a time when, um, uh, you know, their their stories are relevant and poignant and and, mm. and, and for the times that, that we're in and that's how they've all begun. And, 
each of the women that I've written about and each of the stories that I've done um, have had a profound impact on me and, uh, and I'm very yep. privileged that those women have uh, allowed me to tell their story and and I and it, and for them it's it, it has you know it's been it's been quite a cathartic experience to be able to share their stories very publicly for the first time so I feel it's mm. a great it's a great privilege to be able to tell someone's story and delve into their life and and have that level of trust with someone mm. else that they will tell your story the right way mm. it's um I was going to ask you that did you have you been obsessed you know like are you saying you they impacted you but have you like um there's a couple I'm thinking of you know blood on the rosary and yeah. behind closed doors in particular those two I mean I'm not you know they're all great but uh those two are, are profoundly disturbing do you, you yeah. know and have you were you did you become obsessed while writing those and just like sleepless nights and you know, just like yeah, not I to that detective. I, no. I think I think I you're would. right there. It's the detect. There's you know, there's a detective element, and there's probably I think with all of them, um, or particularly those two. Not so much a diamond in the dust, but with those two, there's a sense of um, of justice that hasn't been served. So mm. in each of those stories, in each of those women, I, I felt when I spoke with them that there was a, you know that just justice just had not been served in any way shape or form for these women so the only way that we were going to do that was to try and get their story out in a much bigger broader capacity and mm. um, really try to shine a spotlight on the issues and, and the issues that you're talking about in particular um, are issues of abuse and sexual abuse and family abuse domestic violence um, and, um, and and clergy abuse. So they're they're pretty they're pretty heavy topics. But the women themselves, mm. I, I have found to be incredibly inspirational in the, in their pursuit of justice. So I feel to some extent that I'm just been that I'm I'm the vehicle that's allowed them um, and enabled them to uh, to get to get their story told and to um, hopefully inspire and encourage other people as well. Because ultimately, that's what these stories are all about each of these mm. books and each of these women have also the re remarkably similar thing to me that if telling my story changes one other person's life or makes one other person's life better then it's all worthwhile and that's why I want to do it so hopefully mm. we've been able to achieve that telling those stories mm. yeah I agree there's and there's going to be people listening to this that are avid readers I'm a terrible reader but you know I have to I have to replay the movie in my head while I'm reading I'm terrible but um as an author I shouldn't say that but anyway I'm I'm a terrible reader um but but there will be people who are just who devour books you yeah. know just and I know those people um so and they're going to be like oh what are these books tell me tell me you know because they might not have been books they've seen before so yep. do you want to just give a quick synopsis on um blood on the rosary and behind closed doors because I, I reckon people are going to, if they haven't heard of them, they're going to want them. So behind closed doors, we'll start there because that was really um, the, the sort of catalyst in this particular genre that I've been, that I've been writing. But Blood on the Rose, uh, behind closed doors is a story of um, a, a girl we'll call Catherine X. We've called her Catherine X in the book. Her name's not, yeah. not publicly known. But she um, was a survivor of four decades of abuse at the hands of, of her father. She had multiple children to him. She was essentially his prisoner. Um, she was she was eff effectively kept a prisoner in her own home. Um, and it, it is the worst known case of um, sexual abuse and family abuse 
known in this country. Um, it was an appalling case and, and it happened um, in Gippsland where I grew up and uh, just down the road from, from my own family home and around about the time that I was growing up too. Um, and this, this poor girl she was then endured the most horrific circumstances. But um, she eventually fought back and she eventually was able to free herself from that situation and her father, um, who inflicted horrific, horrific damage to her, um, he is now in, in jail and will be for the rest of his life. But that story I, I found... Um, when I first spoke with, with Catherine, profoundly moving that mm. I grew up in the same place only a few minutes away in, in such entirely different circumstances. You know, a loving home, a very stable and loving family, parents that, you know, would do anything for us. And yet um, just down the road, so to speak, was mm. this girl living in such entirely different circumstances. And it, I've, I found it. The story intriguing that we really don't know what goes on behind our yeah. next door neighbor's closed doors and people didn't you and yet you know now they do I've, I've had a lot of people come to me since and say oh we always thought something odd was going on there well you know no one ever stepped in to save her and and there was a, a real sense of of justice with her eventually um because she was right she had been telling authorities she'd had a very troubled life She'd managed to escape from her father several times and had told authorities about her, but she was portrayed as a liar, oh. as a thief. Um, she, was, she was absolutely downcast. And, um, you know, really, it was, they were just such dreadful circumstances. But uh, a couple of people changed her life, a local police officer um, and a local social worker who did actually believe her and helped her, and they've become lifelong friends. And she's now moved on her father's in jail and um, she's trying as best she can to move on with her life but the circumstances she's had a number you know she her her children are her father's children so so much about her oh, intrigued God. me how she was even able to you know begin to rebuild her life and the courage that that took to prosecute her father the courage that it took to flee this terrible set of circumstances and the unconditional love that she gives to these children, raising mm. them, um, knowing that they're actually her father's children. So mm. there are so many layers to that story, and I think she's a really remarkable woman. Um, similarly, Blood on the Rosary um, came to me sort of in a, in a, in a similar sort of sense. Um, it's, it's the story of um, Margaret Harrod, um, a nun who... Uh, spent many, many, many years fighting the Catholic Church to bring a pedophile priest to justice. And that priest happened to be her twin brother. Now, oh, try and wrap your head around no, that. You, know, no. you, you kind of can't begin to imagine. Um, and Margaret and her brother were peas in a pod growing up. They were twins, inseparable. Um, she became a nun. He became a priest, devoutly Catholic family. You know, they were the apple of their parents' eye when they both um, joined the order. Um, but she began to um, to realise that, that he was doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. Uh, so she went to Catholic orders, went to the officials. Um, nothing was done. And she, in fact, had to leave the order because she'd brought her brother into such disrepute. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. But wow. she continued to fight. She took her fight all the way to the Vatican, 
Wow. And um, and her fa- her, her brother um, has been uh, is now in jail um, thanks to her blowing the whistle on him. And but she lost her family along the way. Um, you know, really, she she paid a very very high price for what she did. But um, she lives with the truth. You know, she she she's mm. a, she she can live with the truth in her heart, knowing that she did the right thing. Uh, and she and she continued that pursuit and brought a number of other pedophile priests to justice too. So that's um, an incredibly powerful thing to be mm. able to do. And uh, her story was very much really about being able to shine a light on that and giving others the voice to come forward too because she really did suffer by speaking out. But in the end, um, all of that was, was well and truly worthwhile. And since we wrote that book, we've had... I can't tell you the number of emails from people that I've, I've had um, who have had similar experiences at the hands of, of those priests and have also now come forward and there's some, some class actions that are happening out of that, which wow. is fantastic um, because some of you know, the, the Catholic Church don't like to <laughs> don't like to admit that these things happened and um, mm. they, they do sometimes give people grief along the way. So there's a great sense of justice um, with that story too. So they're both um, incredibly um, powerful women in their own mm. way and women who are so inspiring by what they have done and the sacrifices and, the, and that they have made and the challenges that they have overcome to speak a truth. And, and that's um, in, in the same way... Uh, as it is with the Freedom Circus, it's a great privilege to be able to tell those stories. Wow. God, there's some amazing women out there, aren't there? Sure are. So those books, I think, yeah, well, all of them, but, you know, I just wanted to highlight them because I, I want people to know they exist because, you know, that they, their stories deserve to be read. I wanted to um, go just touch on your uh, journalism, just <laughs> I was going to ask you that at the very start, but we launched it. <laughs> We've gone the wrong way. It's okay. We can do this however we like. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. Um, when you know, when you were, I won't even go into your whole story about why you became a journalist. But when you, you know, you've worked for the Women's Weekly and a New Idea and a lot of all these, you know, um, women's magazines that you know we just love to pick up and read all the stories and everything else. And you will have met some. Well, amazing people, A, but you would have met some, uh, I can't, what I'm thinking, what's the word I'm thinking? I actually said it in the start. Well, (laughs) where we're going. (laughs) Was it chonky? Colourful. That was it. Colourful identities. Ah, colourful, such a good word, isn't it? It's a word for all occasions, colourful. It gets us through a lot of things without litigation. (laughs) Indeed, it does. I have met some very colourful people. uh, you know, some some that some that are charming and colourful, some that are not so charming and colourful at the same time. Because <laughs> you can be both. You you can absolutely be both. Um, I've been very privileged to uh, look. I've had lots of you know really extraordinary adventures along the way. I've busted cults and met some colourful people in that. I've met some wow. certainly met some colourful criminals in my time. That's for sure. And yeah. I've met um, you know people like uh, Christopher Scaife. So I was the last person to um, interview, well, actually the first person to interview Christopher Scaife in Majorca, and found him um, when I was quite a young journalist. I think about it now and think, gosh, I don't know whether that, you know I was pretty. Am I, allowed to, am I allowed to say ballsy? Is that a word I'm allowed to say? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I think ballsy, I was pretty ballsy yeah. back then. I was, you know. <laughs> No, no children, you know, life's, life's entirely different. And, and I had absolutely no fear of um, 
traipsing around the world trying to find this fellow and uh, yeah, became probably pretty obsessed <laughs> by doing so, but I did. Um, so there's been lots of interesting identities. I've always wow. think, um, I've you know, and I've had the privilege of meeting on the opposite extreme to that people like Princess Diana and, and wow. you know, William yeah. and, uh, you know, Princess Mary of Denmark and, and lots and lots of um, household names and celebrities. But And that's been a great privilege wow. and a lot of fun. Yeah. Lots of fun, um, but it's always I'm always um, I think probably more uh, intrigued by the real people, by the real Australians and their stories. I think I've always you know skewed off in that direction. It's it's lots of fun meeting celebrities and getting to know their stories and what makes them tick and all of that sort mm. of stuff. But uh, I'm actually probably much more comfortable and much more interested in learning about the everyday Australians who have extraordinary stories to tell and the ones that we perhaps don't hear so much about. That's that's always mm. a great joy. And you know what? Yeah. There's so many of them because everybody, yep. everybody has a story to tell. Mm, I know, and some some more fascinating than others. But, uh, but I, I um, and I agree with you because I think that, you know, there's more richness in there, a lot more depth and, you know, all the, and more colour, really, yeah. in, in that. But... Um, I, I'm just going to get sort of smutty and, you know, just what it. about what about Prince Harry? Like, wouldn't you just love to meet? Wouldn't you love to write about him? Isn't he gorgeous? He's just a yes. lot of fun, isn't he? Oh, he's yes. just everything that we love. Yes, yeah. no, I'm, I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of, of Harry. Um, I got to meet yeah. William on when William did a tour before his marriage. Um, I think it was like the final sort of, you know, farewell to, to singlehood. He did come out and did a tour of Australia and I got to follow him around in the in the press pack and that's always a bit of a fun adventure, you know, being yeah. being among the press pack. But Harry, gee, you know, he'd be a great dinner party guest, wouldn't he? Oh yes. I'd love to have him at a dinner party. Just think. Oh, Imagine the stories he could tell. Yes, I love him. I'm not a royal um, royal watcher or a big royal fan, but about Harry, you know, the fact that he said, screw you, you know, I'm doing my thing yeah. and that he's so true to himself. Well, this yes, is, this is how he seems and I believe it, you know, and I might be naive, but I believe it. And he's gorgeous. And, you know, when he was little, we kind of looked at him and William and thought, oh, poor Harry. And now he's a stunner, he's, isn't he? I think it's his spirit. I mean, the spirit to, you I know, takes so. a lot of courage to turn your back on on, yeah. on that. I mean, it's everything, isn't it? That whole, you know, yeah. that whole world and that lifestyle and um, to be able to have the courage to say, you know what, I think I, think I want to do something different given yeah. the circumstances and the pressure and, and and I think wow you know that is so brave it's really really brave and it takes yeah. such a sense of spirit to do that and I think it's wonderful that he had the confidence to be able to say you know no I'm okay I can do this I'm good I've got it and I'm and I'm gonna go with it and look what he's done yeah. I mean wow oh he's he's a but he's on your bucket list isn't he oh, oh come on yeah absolutely <laughs> sure is <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Who else is on there? Uh, look, I was very fortunate to meet Oprah, um, but, what? but briefly, really? yeah, yeah, and wow. I got to meet Oprah in Chicago many years ago, um, but only briefly. Like literally, it was an, an I think all up nine minute conversation, which was actually pretty good going. But I really, cool. yeah, that's pretty cool. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's um, very cool. But I'd love to actually sit down. You know, she'd be on my bucket list too. She'd be on my dinner party list for sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely for sure. 
Um, Obama. I mean, wouldn't Obama be on your dinner party yep. list? Yep. Oh, wow. And Michelle. And I have all of them. Yep. In fact, if I had all yeah. I'd go, wow. I mean, seriously, jeepers. And I think probably for, I'm going to get political, but for all the wrong reasons, I, I think Trump, <laughs> Trump. I think Trump yeah. might be on my dinner party list too. <laughs> Just for the entertainment value. You, you wouldn't know where that's going to go, would you? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> You'd just, well, before you'd even had entree, I think you'd be, you know, picking yourself up the floor. So for all for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> my goodness, what, geez, I wouldn't, you know, look, journalistically, oh, my, what I'd give to interview him, you know. Wow. Oh, Where would you, you even begin? You wouldn't believe anything he said, but it would certainly be a party, <laughs> oh, wouldn't it? Probably That's not, fun. but sure to be interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And just the colour of it all. I mean, imagine, you know, imagine. So the mind, the mind boggles what that would actually be like. But, you know, they're uh, they're they're the they're the people that kind of interest me. But then there's a million other people who, um, real people who who interest me enormously too. And it, and and I'm yeah. very very I do feel genuinely very privileged to be in this sort of job where you know you do get to go out and meet those people and have a, have a cup of tea and a conversation with someone who might not make a headline. But their circumstances and their story and their achievements are um, nonetheless equally as fabulous. Yeah, and it's also the honour, isn't it? The privilege that they let you into their lives. You know, Very they, much they so. trust you, and and yeah, I think that's that's beautiful. But is, so, do, Ed, can we just go back a step? Does that mean that you you busted Scacy? <laughs> I did bust Scacy. <laughs> <laughs> Although I was invited in, so I didn't really bust him, but. Um, it, look, it took a long time, months and months and months of negotiation with them, emails. And, well, actually, there weren't even emails back then. There were faxes back then um, yeah. and conversations and, and earning the trust. And my he felt that everything – he didn't trust any journalist because he felt that everything he said was taken out of context. So our agreement, my agreement with him was – that I would allow him to read the copy before it went to print. And if he really, really had an issue with something, then we could discuss it. But I wanted him to to feel that I wasn't going to misquote him. I wasn't going to chop or change his quotes or make him be something. I would literally take him as I found him. And that's how I would report on him. And he was, he was good. That's, that's the agreement that we came to. So he didn't... Um, so I was invited to go over and um, spend some time with them and we, I interviewed them over several days and we did quite, you know, big photo shoots with them and that's how it was. And look, at that, you know, he was, he was genuinely very sick. There's no way that you could, um, you, you certainly couldn't fake what was going on over there. He was, he was almost green with jaundice and skeletal, absolutely horrific, you know, the signs of someone terribly, terribly sick with cancer. So there was no mistaking any of that. But he had things that he wanted to say and we, uh, you know, it, we trusted one another that, that um, if, you know, given the opportunity, I would do the right thing and, and report him accurately. And that's how it was. Um, so, so I developed a relationship with, with them and with the family. And then as he got closer, uh, much closer to his death, there were things that he sort of wanted to get off his chest. And so... I got a further phone call from them to say, you know, there's things that he, it's not looking good. There's things he wants to say, um, come over. And so I did. And look like him or lump him. And, and Australians have a very, um, can you know, Australians of a certain age who remember um, him and remember what happened um, will have very strong opinions about him. And that's not for me to, 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 to judge one way or the other. Mm. But... Um, 
we, you know, my, my role really was to present what was happening over there and, and, and to actually sort of, you know, physically see them face to face and, and write about what their life was doing over there. And, and that's what we did. And, um, you know, those stories were uh, instrumental at the time, headline stories, and, and it certainly annoyed the government and, and particularly um, Amanda Vanstone at that point that the government had spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to find him with no trace and a journalist from New Idea whilst on over to Majorca and was sitting <laughs> sitting down having cups of tea with them. So that certainly didn't go down very, very well, I've got to say. <laughs> funny but you know that's life isn't it I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. carry that carry that badge of honor for a while <laughs> but <laughs> yeah it's great I literally you know this is sort of the craziness of the, the career that I've had I literally came back from Mallorca um wrote the story went to press and then within two days I was I was on my way to Maui um because at, the, at exactly the <laughs> same time a st- very big story was breaking out of Maui and that was the murder of toddler Jaden Lesky, which, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. some of us will yeah. remember again, people of a certain age will remember um, yeah. the tragic murder of of Jaden Lesky. So that's, yeah. um, you know, that was the fun and cra- And these were very heady days, you know. This was back in the day. I haven't written for New Idea for a very long time. It's a very, very different magazine to the magazine that I was certainly involved with. But, um, mm. you know, these were the heady days of magazines long before sort of the internet took over everything. And we literally did do our own stories. Um, I would turn up to work some days and I, I would might be off to, you know, Mallorca in the afternoon or... Uh, on one occasion I was off to Paris to interview Tina Arena so I'd turn up for work and get the notice that you know this interview is going ahead go home and get your bag and get yourself off to the airport so off we'd go Um, and they were really wild adventures I I had a lot of fun um, interviewing Kylie Minogue in Barbados um, when she was doing some things over there and um, went to Japan to do some things with Olivia Newton-John when she was on tour in Japan so there's been a lot of really Mm. you know really fun experiences and I feel a bit sad for the younger journalists these days that probably won't get those opportunities to do that and certainly in the time of COVID no one's had the opportunity to do anything quite like that it's a very very different world but I I look back at it really really fondly and think that um, I was very fortunate to come through that era of what what probably are the golden years of Australian journalism yeah yeah Oh wow, wow! God, you had you had me holding my breath there for all of them. The Freedom Circus, the other two books. It's like it's uh, Scacy. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. You know, I would have. You know, I'd I'd love to have Scacy at a dinner party too. Just quietly, that's never going to happen. But you know. There's a well, lot. You had of him for two days. I had him for a couple of days. Yes, I did. And then he yeah. was exceptionally good and fascinating company. Really, really interesting company. Very charismatic man. Um, for for uh, that that just was was his nature. But um, you know, maybe there's a few more stories there for, that that he perhaps could have told too. Who knows? Oh, we won't know now. But no, voices from the grave. Wow, you what a what a now a colourful life. Yes, colourful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're not calling me a colourful character, I I'm not calling you a character. I'm saying you've had a colourful life. No, no, I think you're gorgeous. I think you're just you're just a beautiful person. You just and you you know what you you while you're out doing some of these um you know stories that that some people call 
gutter gutter trash, you know, yeah. depending on what they are. I mean, they're not really, but you know, so, sometimes uh, some some of those magazines can. Oh, do that. look, but, don't apologise for that. I mean, you know, the, this this era of journalism, and certainly magazines like New Idea and Woman's Day. I mean, they they really are dreadful. <laughs> I can yeah. say that quite profoundly. They are they are not the magazines that I worked on, and you know, back. I was working on New Idea, you know, 10 years ago now. So, and well, actually more than that, um, it's been a lot longer than that since I left New Idea and I've been for a long time working with Women's Weekly and and freelancing writing for Women's Weekly and um, magazines like uh, Good Weekend and The Weekend Australian magazine, which I really, really love. But, you know, those magazines, the New Ideas and the Women's Days of the World, um, I think these days they're probably to be treated as entertainment and yeah, um, yeah. and a sense of escapism and, um, you know, certainly not my cup of tea to write for them, but for a lot of people, they do provide entertainment and they do provide um, a momentary escape from all yeah, of our own yeah. troubles in life. So they've got their, the, for, the, for those people who love reading them and there are, you know, still millions and millions of people that read them every week, they mm. have a role to play and, and I, I can't knock that at all. No, no, I agree. No. Wow. Anyway, well, you've um, gotten off the bench like many, many, many times and I just absolutely love it. But um, so I want to, um, this this podcast clearly is Get Off the Bench and it's yeah. to inspire people to follow their dream. And so sticking with your, you know, writing journey and all that, because it, I know stacks of people that say, oh, I'd love to write a book. I'd love to write. I'd love to submit articles and, you know, and, and, and do blogs and all that sort of stuff, but they don't do it, you know. So, and yeah. I really want to encourage them to um what advice would you give someone who really loves writing and is aching to share stories maybe their own you know would like to do any of that just do it honestly um there really is no other advice you can give just just do it um you know you're not a writer unless you've actually written something so get a piece of paper out open up your laptop and actually put some words down and then you're a writer. Um, once you've started putting the words down on paper, and it might not be the perfect the first time or the second or the third, um, but you are a writer and you're writing. And that's yeah. the most I really can't encourage people enough to actually just have a go. And I think one of the wonderful things about this year, you know, is social media and, and the new outlets that we have um, to share stories. Some people don't particularly like it, but I think uh these days it gives it really does give everybody an opportunity um to have their voice heard which is a really fantastic thing and there are so many platforms now you can use to have your voice heard on your on your writing scene and your stories told um more platforms than ever before so i think that there you know now is the time and the story is not going to tell itself unless you do it first so Mm. i think it's so important um, to have the courage to just say, you know what, I'll give it a go. And also yeah. to ask for help. You know, if, if you've written something and you'd like someone to look at it, ask, you know. I, I don't know any journalist who says no. So I get people who come to me all the time and say, I've got an idea for this. or And I, I will always take the time to help them in, in, in any way that I can because I had that help when I started out too. So I'm a big believer in um, putting the ladder down, not pulling the ladder up. Um, yeah, put the yeah. ladder down and help people to get on the rung and, and, and help them with that journey. And there are, you know, even resources like your local library. Go to your local librarian, ask her to have a read, ask a friend to read your story and make comments and take the critical mm. comments 
and then rework yeah. it and then have a, have a go and have another go and have another go. And, and that's how you succeed. You, you don't succeed no matter what you're doing in life, no matter what it is, whether it's writing or it's something else entirely. The dream doesn't happen if you don't make it happen. You actually have yeah. to take the first step and then the second and they might be very small steps to begin with but that's how you make it happen because no one else will make it happen for you. And no. that's something that I live my life by, even right down to, you know, a book like The Freedom Circus, which was incredibly challenging. And um, many, many days when I thought, oh, this is just too hard. I'm never going to be able to get to the end of this. You just, you know, take a deep breath and say, okay, right. So what what can I achieve today? What can I do today? And I make myself a little list and I say, right, if I can find out this or I can get this bit written and then just keep moving forward. That's what you've got to do because yeah. you get there in the end. Yep. And it is, it's just it's just taking a journey step by step, a journey in the direction that you're headed and you'll eventually get there. It's, you know, you're not going to get to Sydney from Melbourne if you've still got your car in the car park, are That's you? That's exactly right. And, you know, you're. I'm always amazed people... Everybody has networks and people that they know, yes. and yep. you know sometimes they're, they're sitting right in front of you, and you don't you don't realise it. But um, I do mm. very firmly believe in asking for help. Yeah, all someone yep. can say is no, and you've lost nothing from it. So if they say no, move on to the next person. Ask the next person. Ask the local editor of the newspaper. Ask a local journalist. Write to your favourite journalist or your favourite author and say, hey, you know, can you give me some tips? Nine times out of ten, they will write back and say, yeah, look, you know, do this or this or this or go and have a look at this website or follow this person. Um, and that's another step in your journey along the way. Yeah. Yep, I agree. And I like, you know, start messy too because um, yep. nobody, nobody starts perfect, you know. and nobody, nobody ends perfect, you know. <laughs> no, that's exactly how it goes. It's always messy. It's Everything's a yeah. work in progress. Yeah. And just start it. Just start. And I just, yeah, good, good advice. Oh, well, I hope people take that advice because the problem is we fear. Everybody fears, you know, like I can't ask because someone will think I'm stupid or someone will judge my way. You know, Nikki started writing blogs and it, it was hell trying to get her to put the first one out. You know, yeah. she's like, oh, what if people don't like it? What if no one reads it? Like, who cares? Who cares? You know, just who cares? put it out. <laughs> just start the process. And yeah. finally it was like publish and she she hit went and hid for a day do you know like whoa I can't stand what people are going to say I was like oh two kids it's out there now so oh, too bad. I hear you I hear you and I think you know sometimes things just seem so overwhelmingly big I mean I know with this yeah. book with the freedom circus it was such an overwhelmingly big task that I did fear it for a long time and I probably and that's why it probably took me so long in the end to write the book because I was I was terrified that this story was bigger than anything that I'd ever encountered and how on earth was I going to you know do this there was so much research to be done and but you just have to chip it away at it every single day every day and as a writer you know I still you know your book goes out to the world and you've spent your you know lights your life's work there on a page and and some people will love it and some people will not and that's okay doesn't matter in the end other people's opinions really just really don't matter well, I think it's the same with any artist, you know, it, like any form of art. It comes from your soul, so you kind of like feel like you're bearing your soul. But at the end of the day, you know, you're right. Some will like it, some will hate it, some will what love it, whatever. But it, it's a creation that was never there before you put it there. So it, it's you're adding a bit of colour to the world and you're adding lights to the world. And that's what counts, doesn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it and doesn't it? Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Yep. That I wasn't very good English. wholeheartedly. But you... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sounds good today. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Who oh, cares? That's exactly right. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, who cares? Oh, look, I, you, you should hear some. I listen back over some of my um, episodes when I'm uh, editing and I think, oh, my God, did I really say that? Like one of them I said, you're really interested in, in gender roles. And I meant to say gender, but, you know, I don't notice it until I'm editing and I think, oh, Jesus. You know, <laughs> I think I'm not, I'm not cutting it out too bad. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, and look, you know, I, I still look back at... You know, if, if, if I read back over some of my work, I think, oh, I can't believe I wrote that. That's so awful. <laughs> you know, who let that go? But at the time, you think it's the best thing in the world. You know, so what? Yeah, so who cares? What? Who cares? You should, hear my, you should hear my early songs that I wrote when I was younger. Jeez, they're terrible. But you know what? It, it, it turned out that I can write good songs now. Yeah, so absolutely. It, it, is, it is what it is. It is. Yeah. It, it is. And you know what? I, I'd say that a lot, actually. It is what it is. And yeah. Um, no one no one will take those steps for you. Just do it. And I think the world would be a better place if we really didn't worry about what other people think. I mean, you look at, yeah. you know, social media and all those sorts of things and it can be very consuming and it can be incredibly challenging when people you know are critical or say horrible things or whatever. We need to we need to develop that skin that says, you know what? Whatever. It just doesn't yeah. matter to me. It really doesn't matter to me. It's not going to change my world what someone else thinks of me or my writing for that matter. I might might be a bit sniffy for a day, but, you know. Oh, yeah, we all do that. We all crack the shits. Absolutely. And that's okay. And that's, yeah, okay. that's, that's right. what chocolate's for. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and then it's just like, isn't it? It's like, you, you bitch. Yeah. And then it's like, ah, oh, stiff shit. And stay in your own lane and just get moving. Absolutely. Just get going. Three Tim Tams <laughs> and a glass of wine and you're over yeah. it. <laughs> Solve the world's problems, you could, over a Tim Tam. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I reckon too. Uh, Shit, I might suck on a lemon for a couple of days, but anyway. Get on the Tim Tams. Get on the Tim Tams. That's Uh, exactly right. Uh, Well, Sue, I have loved this. I loved, loved these stories. And, you know, the, the, the depth and the richness is just, it's just exceptional. And just so glad that you're doing all this and so glad that you're highlighting, you know, stories of people that um, would otherwise not not be t- heard or not be, you know, these stories wouldn't be shared. So uh, thank you for that. And, but I'm, I'm just sorry. Well, I should let you respond. I was going to say likewise to you. Thank you for, for having the courage to have a go. And I, it's, such, it's so enjoyable talking to you. And, and I absolutely love your positivity and the kindness that you put out into the world. I think you're a gem. So good Aww. on you, Karen. So I'm going to get my love heart teddy bear right now. <laughs> and a Tim Tam, maybe? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you oh, can have them you. when you're happy and you're sad. That's why they're yeah, so that's, good. That's, <laughs> that's brilliant. Oh, I really appreciate that, Sue. Thank you. It means the world. It really does. Well, Thank I you. think everybody needs a voice and, and, and I, I think it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to hear from um, such interesting people so thanks for doing what you're doing yeah i agree absolutely agree now where can people find you people can find me at yeah so my website is um, sue smethurst media and there's lots of 
you know, yeah, dot com, just a dot com, not a dot au, a dot com, and um, all of my books. You know, you can read about my books there, and there's you know, bits and pieces of stories that I've written and whatever. And I'm on all of the usuals, all of the you know, all of the nasty socials that you have to be on, Twitter <laughs> and Instagram, and all those sort of fantastic things. And um, and all of my Thank books you. are available in all major bookstores, so um, I'm not yeah. hard to find. Fantastic. And if and you LinkedIn. Google me, you'll find all sorts of fun stories about cult people and, you know, all the strange things that I've done. It's all there for the world to see. That's fantastic. Well, I hope people do and I hope people connect with you and, and, and get at least one of your books because, um, you know, if not more, I think the, the, the book addicts are probably going to go and buy several of them. But, um, yeah, they just uh, – anyway, I just value you so much, Sue, and you just um, – your kindest heart and I just love what you're doing for people and likewise love Karen, thank you thank you so much all right well I'm gonna let you go and have a Tim Tam and a wine oh, and um <laughs> and I look forward to next time we're chatting well I look forward to maybe having a Tim Tam and a wine in person sometime won't that just be oh, fabulous yes let's just make a deal let's just make a deal <laughs> beautiful all right well until then um, thank you so much. And um, yes, and I'm, I'm going to uh, connect with you in a minute to make a date. So thank you. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> okay, see ya. Oh, guys, how's that? Oh, wow. I can't even. What a colourful life. Not a colourful person, but what a colourful life. Oh, my God. You know, uh, Christopher Skays and like uh, all those celebrities. And, and I bet you guys agree with me, um, you know, Prince Harry. Wow. Anyway, what an amazing bunch of things she's done to get off the bench and, and just, uh, you know, I love the fact that she's brought all these stories to life and oh, I, I hope you go buy her books. I hope you're inspired to start writing. I hope that you can see that you can just start messy and you can write books or you can write a blog or you can do whatever you want. You know, stories need to be out there and if you have got something to say, you've got something to write, you've got a short story to share, just start messy and just do it. So anyway, go grab grab one or more of her books. Um, I'm going to have her website and everything, suesmethurstmedia.com, and I'll have that on the um, in the show notes. So go and have a look at everything and follow, start following Sue and, uh, and just start writing. That's it for me. I'm going to stop ranting, and I hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode. It's been fantastic speaking to Sue and thanks again for joining me every week and I really appreciate it and I'll catch you next week. See ya. Hey thanks for joining me it really does mean the world to me. Now if you or somebody you know is doing amazing things make sure you send me an email to info at getoffthebench.com.au that's info at getoffthebench.com.au otherwise head on over to my website at kerenvaughan.com and tinker around there a bit and send me a message. Okay, catch you next week.